Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. It's been 3,170 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 251 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, the Kremlin's announcement they were withdrawing from the Ukrainian grain shipment agreement after the drone attack on the Black Sea fleet backfired spectacularly, putting Moscow in a no-win political position. Second, we assess that the private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, is being spread dangerously thin as the Russian Ministry of Defense continues to expand the company's role in Donetsk. Third, Although the weather has improved in central and western Ukraine and is unseasonably warm in places, we maintain that Rasputitsa is slowing down combat operations and that winter combat conditions will start in the next four weeks. Fourth, we assess that Russia's baseless accusation that Ukraine is preparing to use an improvised nuclear weapon as part of a broader disinformation campaign is already fading from the news cycle and in the social media information space. Fifth, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. Sixth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat-destroyed and is incapable of mounting offensive operations larger than a company. Seventh, we maintain that the mobilization of 300,000 troops has not improved Russian combat strength and exposed the training, logistical, and supply problems within the Russian Federation. On top of that, the new Mobics are suffering from catastrophic losses. Eighth, we maintain that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat, and that an invasion of western Ukraine is possible in the next 40 to 70 days. Ninth, we maintain our assessment that Russian forces are engaged in a withdrawal from Kherson, which will likely continue over the next four to eight weeks. Tenth, we assess that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue across Ukraine. And finally, we assess that Russia's threat to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is no longer credible. Let's get some regional updates, starting, of course, with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. There was very little information that came out of the Kherson region today. The Russian Ministry of Defense repeated claims of fighting on the northern front, launching attacks on Ishenka, Pyatikhatki, and Chervoni Yar. 
It is the second day in a row the Russian MOD has reported fighting in Chervoni Yar. We left the warm-up unchanged from yesterday, and we have no way to verify the veracity of the report. The Russian MOD also reported fighting in Zeleny High. This is another interesting report, implying that Ukrainian forces advanced into Ternovipodi. But like the Russian MOD claims about Chervoni Yar, we have no way of validating the report's veracity. The Kremlin relies on picture reports as proof of battlefield success, and we have repeatedly documented how Russian field officers in Ukraine generate false reports. We did, however, notice that Russian mill bloggers Rybar and Wargonzo did not repeat the claims or share some variation. No reports from Wargonzo hints that the Russian MOD report isn't very reliable. Valentin Nekhinov, who has been a reliable intelligence source, is in Kherson and did not submit any report. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported one airstrike which struck Russian troop formations near Snikhorivka, and ground forces conducted 190 fire missions. Ukraine claimed it shot down two Russian Ka-52 alligator attack helicopters in the Bereslav Rayon, but did not provide any supporting evidence. The partial evacuation and retreat from Kherson continued, while Russian forces appeared to reinforce defenses around the city. Insurgents in Kherson attacked the police department parking facility for a second time, setting more vehicles on fire. The fire burned into the evening because Russian forces stole most of the fire equipment from the city. Russian-appointed Gauleiter of occupied Kherson, Vladimir Saldo, announced a new mandatory evacuation zone from the east bank of the Dnipro River, 15 kilometers deep from the Zaporizhia-Kherson administrative border in Novoznamyanka to the mouth of the river into the Dniprovska Gulf. The official reason was to protect civilians from future attacks. Russian occupation officials stated on October 30th that civilians would be forcibly moved starting on November 1st. At the time of recording, Ukrainian officials reported that residents' forced removal from the Dnipro's east bank had started. A quick editor's note here. Due to a 10-hour time zone difference, our reports are frequently prepared when morning arrives in Ukraine. Some assessment here. There was rampant online speculation that the evacuation was a prelude to Russian forces blowing up the Novokakhovka Dam. However, the evacuation area extends 105 kilometers upstream from the dam, an area that would not be impacted if a breach occurred. In our assessment, this is being done to reduce insurgent activity, minimize the number of reports about Russian troop movements, and out of a truly irrational concern that Ukrainian forces will attempt an amphibious landing on the east bank of the Dnipro. What is it with these guys and amphibious landings? Although removing civilians will reduce insurgent activity, Russian troops and their proxies continue to practice poor operational security. As they say, the call is coming from inside the house. It is unlikely that this change will provide much concealment for troop movements. Russian forces continue to build fortifications on the east bank and near Kherson, while heavily mining both banks of the Dnipro. In Russian-occupied Kohovka, civilians were forcibly removed from their homes to provide housing for Russian troops. In Mykolaiv, 
OCS reported that Russian forces shelled two civilian tugboats moving a barge with grain in the port of Ochekiv. The attack started a fire, and one of the vessels sunk. Two civilian crew members were killed, one is missing and presumed dead, and a fourth was injured. Russian forces have renewed S-300 anti-aircraft missile attacks on Mykolaiv, striking ground targets. Vitaly Kim, Mykolaiv Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that four missiles hit the city, targeting schools and residential buildings. One five-story apartment building suffered a direct hit and caught on fire. We'll have more information for you on that in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has degraded. Radiation levels remained normal and plant operations continued, but the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, reported that a landmine exploded, damaging the 750-kilovolt external power line between the plant and Reactor 4, which is in a cold shutdown state. Power automatically switched over to a temporary 330-kilovolt line connected to the adjacent Zaporizhia thermal power plant. In a potential sign of slight progress between Energoatom and Rosatom, IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi reported that Reactor 6 is being brought up to a hot shutdown state. This is a critical step to move Reactor 5 from a hot shutdown state to producing electrical power again. Grossi confirmed that there had been shelling in Enerjodar near ZNPP and expressed, quote, grave concern about the treatment of Enerjodar employees by Moscow and how it is compromising plant safety. The IAEA repeated their stance that Moscow's claim to, quote, own ZNPP is unrecognized, the power plant belongs to Ukraine, and Ukrainian officials should be responsible for the decision-making for plant operations. An update was provided on one of the kidnapped Enerhoatom employees who was taken into Russian custody two weeks ago. One of the men, who was unnamed, has been released and is with his family and reported to be in, quote, good health. Director Grossi called for Russian officials to release the second employee still being held hostage. Nikopol and Markhanets continued to be shelled by grad rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, the two communities were hit more than 40 times, with a 14-story-tall apartment building, kindergarten, and local shops damaged. Russian forces targeted the water system in Markhanets, continuing its strategy of terror attacks on civilians. Over 40,000 households were without water, and another 10,000 were without electricity. Utility workers were already working on repairing the damage at the time of recording. In Berdyansk, Insurgents targeted the first deputy mayor for foreign policy and mass communications, Pavel Ishuk, with an IED outside his home. Ishuk is reported to be conscious and hospitalized in serious condition. In an indication that the Kremlin has lost confidence in its ability to advance further into Zaporizhia, Ukrainian source RIA Melitopol shared pictures of half-height dragon's teeth, derisively called cope cones by Ukrainians, arriving in Melitopol. The concrete pyramids are meant to create an obstacle for armored vehicles, which risk getting stuck if they attempt to drive over them. There was only sporadic artillery fire along the Zaporizhia line of conflict. 
Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. Only light fighting was reported by most Russian sources, with War Gonzo being an outlier. The People's Militia of the DNR Public Relations Channel claimed their forces destroyed an M777 artillery piece, a 152mm self-propelled howitzer, or SPG, one tank, and six units of, quote, armored and automotive vehicles, once again, entirely without evidence. The DNR claimed Ukrainian forces conducted 92 fire missions on the occupied territories. Pavlo Kirilenko, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that west of Donetsk, Russian forces only fired sporadically on Avdivka, Pervomaiske, and Marinka. Some assessment here. There were reports that the DNR militia suffered catastrophic losses during their advances on Opitne and Vodjana. We have no way to confirm the figures, which were as high as 500 killed in action on October 29th, but the sharp reduction in operational tempo since October 30th would support that Russian military leaders exhausted their combat power in exchange for battle-scarred beet fields and a line of trees east of Opitne. If the 500 killed in action number is accurate, another estimated 1,250 to 1,500 would have been wounded in action, rendering a brigade combat destroyed. Fighting continued in the eastern part of Marinka and the eastern outskirts of Novobakhmutivka. Mill blogger Rybar repeated the claims of the DNR Territorial Guard Telegram channel, which is notoriously inaccurate. Ridovka, which is closer to propaganda than journalism, and Wargonzo reported there was no change in the situation. In Kostyantanivka, a Ukrainian Mi-8 helicopter was shot down. There is significant fog of war around the situation in Pavlivka, the one in Donetsk. The Russian MOD did not provide an update today after claiming the settlement was half-captured on October 30th. Ukrainian sources denied there was a Russian breakthrough, while Wargonzo fell between, claiming that fighting was ongoing, with Ukrainian troops still south of the Kashlehut River. Because there have been no verifiable pictures, videos, or NASA fire information for resource management, that's firms, heat anomaly data, the war map remains unchanged. In Mariupol, rockets fired by HIMARS struck the Akhthamar Hotel. The property was housing recently arrived Chechen forces, who just could not wait to break operational security and share their location on social media. After the attack on the Kerch Bridge that links Russia to Russian-occupied Crimea, Russian forces and equipment have been forced to move over land via a much longer route, turning Mariupol into a logistics and transit hub. The city also has an extensive insurrection ongoing, with partisans eager to help accelerate liberation. In northeast Donetsk, the only reports of fighting were northeast of Solidar near Yakovlivka, on the outskirts of Bakhmutska, and along the E-40 highway east of Bakhmut. Both Ukrainian and Russian sources reported the only intense fighting was on the E-40 defensive line. Fighting on the Donetsk-Luhansk administrative border near Spirna and Berestova continued, a Russian Mi-8 helicopter was shot down just east of the administrative border in Mykolaivka, Luhansk. A manpad hit the rotocraft, fired from the direction of Berestova in Donetsk, 
and it appeared to attempt to fly to Russian-controlled territory before flames from the missile strike consumed the aircraft. Some assessment here. The video of the strike helped confirm that Ukrainian forces are in or near Mykolaivka, as reported by the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine on October 30th. More broadly, we maintain that the Ukrainian HIMARS strike on Mayorsk that killed up to 300 Russian troops, the redeployment of PMC Wagner Group mercenaries to Bilohorivka, Mykolaivka, and Berestova, and the losses suffered south of Bakhmut over the previous two days has significantly impacted Russian proxy forces' combat strength. Wagner has been forced to spread their resources over a much longer front, forcing the private military company into a mostly defensive posture. We believe this is only temporary, unless late fall weather continues to degrade battlefield and road conditions. Moving on to Luhansk, where fighting is ongoing along the entire line of conflict from the Kharkiv-Luhansk administrative border to Bilohorivka. Obviously, I mean the one in Luhansk though there weren't any specific areas of significant fighting. Based on available reports, we made some adjustments to the map, moving the line of conflict 500 meters east into Raichorodka based on Russian sources. Our map has been conservative in this area compared to both Ukrainian and Russian sources. We increased the gray area west of Chervonopopivka after reports from multiple Russian sources that Ukrainian troops had been pushed back from the western edge of the town, but did not move the line of conflict. A reliable Ukrainian source reported that Russian troops were able to push west in the direction of Bilohorivka, again the Bilohorivka in Luhansk. We moved the line of conflict away from Maloryazantseve, and our caution about using the words near Lysychansk in yesterday's episode, was well-placed. Russian mill blogger Rybar reported that Ukraine attacked Russian strongholds in Svatov, Kremina, Alchevsk, and Pervomaisk with rockets fired by HIMARS. In Alchevsk, the Metallurg Hotel, used as a Russian barracks, was struck. There was no information on casualties. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. Ole Siniubov, Kharkiv Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported three more settlements in Kharkiv had been liberated with Russian forces now controlling 25 towns. We don't have specific information on which settlements, and to respect operational security, will not share our analysis at this time. Russian sources reported continued fighting in Dvorichne and reported Ukrainian forces were advancing into Taviljanka. There is not enough verifiable information to declare Dvorichne liberated. In the Cherniev and Sumy region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, reported the Hromadas of Znobnovhorotsk and Krasnopilia were shelled by artillery fired by Russian troops from across the international border. The barrage landed in unpopulated areas, and there were no injuries reported. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, it was noted that during the punitive attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure across Ukraine, no vessels with the Russian Black Sea fleet participated. 
There remains uncertainty on how much damage was caused by the drone attack on October 29th. There was only one ship capable of launching up to eight caliber cruise missiles out to sea on October 31st. Quick assessment here. Okay, candidly, this is closer to speculation than assessment. But we maintain that damage to the Black Sea Fleet was likely worse than reported. The Russian Ministry of Defense initially claimed they would not allow 14 bulk carriers carrying grain to sail out of Odessa. As we reported yesterday, the 14 ships sailed out while Russian drone and cruise missile attacks were ongoing. After threatening to block the vessels, which were escorted by Ukrainian ships to help navigate port defenses and minefields, and then handed off to United Nations supporting warships, the Russian Ministry of Defense protested the actions of Ukraine, Turkey, and the United Nations. When we started to prepare today's situation report, the lead ships had already sailed out of the Green Corridor and into the open waters of the Black Sea without Russian interference. Some assessment here. Russia has no way to score a political or military victory over the grain shipment dispute. While the first convoy was unexpected and the state of the Black Sea Fleet is in question, the real test will come when the next convoy leaves Ukraine. Turkey, Ukraine, and the United Nations have already said a second group of ships will depart. If Russia blocks the convoy, they will become the inarguable belligerent blocking food to the world. If they confront the convoy or the United Nations escort vessels from the Turkish Navy, they risk escalating the war beyond Ukraine. And if Russia does nothing, its leaders will appear weak to the population of the Russian Federation. This would have been preventable if the Kremlin didn't respond like a petulant child after a Ukrainian military strike on a legitimate military target that has repeatedly attacked Ukrainian civilians and civilian infrastructure. In our assessment, it appears that the Kremlin has already decided on option three. Do nothing. Moscow officials are repeating the false narrative that only 4% of the exported grain from Ukraine has gone to, quote, poor nations, which is incorrect and ignores the grain stolen by the Russian Federation during the summer of 2022. A BBC analysis reported that 30% of grain and oil has gone to so-called lower-income countries, while 44% has gone to higher-income nations. As we have tracked in our situation reports, the grain deal significantly lowered wheat costs, easing supply concerns globally. Also, while a significant amount of grain was shipped across the Black Sea, it wasn't all consumed by Turkey and was delivered to other nations through third-party shippers. In central and western Ukraine, four Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones struck civilian infrastructure in the Poltava Oblast. There was no information on the specific location or what infrastructure was hit beyond that it wasn't electrical. Air defenses shot down three more drones. On the Russian front, the explosion at Piskov Air Base in Russia was an act of sabotage. Russian state media claimed two helicopters were significantly damaged, while other sources claimed two were destroyed and two more damaged. Satellite imagery showed there were three helicopters on the tarmac. In our assessment, two aircraft were destroyed and one damaged. S-300 anti-aircraft missiles fired by Russian forces from Bilgorod apparently failed during launch and crashed back into the city. 
there were no reports of injuries. Russian sources reported the village of Krasnoye in the Bilgorod Oblast was shelled by Ukrainian forces. There were no reports of injuries there either. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. On October 31st, the Russian military launched 55 KH-101 air-to-surface cruise missiles, one KH-59 air-to-surface cruise missile, 22 S-300 anti-aircraft missiles, and four Shahed-136 kamikaze drones at civilian infrastructure and military targets across Ukraine. Of the 82 missiles and drones launched, 67 were intercepted, with the debris of three missiles that were shot down landing in populated areas. That means Ukrainian air defense shot down 82% of the missiles and drones nationwide, which is hella impressive for a country without a complete layered air defense system. Ukrainian officials reported the IRIS-T anti-aircraft system provided by Germany was flawless, scoring a 100% success rate. It was unclear if the two recently delivered NASM's air defense systems have been fully deployed. Despite the success, multiple critical power nodes that supply 330 kilovolt high-voltage electricity to Ukraine were badly damaged or destroyed, including Ukraine's fifth-largest power plant. The renewed attacks also damaged recent repairs, with Ukrainian officials admitting that the supply of critical spare parts has been used. Rolling blackouts will likely be a part of Ukrainian life nationwide into the foreseeable future. Ukrainian linemen and civil engineers continued their heroic efforts to keep electricity, heat, and water service flowing. Less than 24 hours after the latest missile and drone strikes, rolling blackouts had been limited to seven oblasts, including Kyiv, Cherniv, Cherkasy, Zhitomir, Sumy, Kharkiv, and Poltava. Twelve nations have already pledged immediate aid to supply Ukraine with resources to restore their electrical grid. Israel, Spain, Italy, Lithuania, Germany, North Macedonia, Poland, the Republic of Korea, Slovakia, Slovenia, Finland, and France have committed to providing generators and switches for transformer farms. The NATO Crisis Center is working with Ukraine and diplomats from France, Germany, Belgium, Sweden, and the People's Republic of China yes, you did hear that last one correctly to expedite the shipment and manufacturing of critical energy equipment such as transformers. The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Dmitry Kuleba, said, quote, We will not let Russian terror break either our partners or us. We are grateful to every partner and every company that responded to our urgent request. End quote. Okay, sidebar. Israel and the People's Republic of China? Way to go, Russia, on uniting the fence-sitters. Who would have thought that the prospect of millions of people freezing to death would be frowned upon diplomatically? For those of you keeping score at home, Russia's justification for invading Ukraine to prevent NATO expansion did not go well either. While China has bought a significant amount of oil on the cheap from Russia to prop up the economy, the only verifiable military aid has been poorly made tires that fail on the battlefield. Remember Russia's claims that Ukraine was preparing dirty bombs in two locations? Malcontent News remembers. 
The IAEA announced that inspectors are at both sites where the Kremlin claimed dirty bombs were being assembled in order to perform inspections. Ukrainian leaders requested the inspections using paragraph 4 of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum immediately after Russia made the baseless claim. Both alleged locations are already under IAEA safeguards and have been visited regularly by IAEA inspectors. Through a press release, Grossi stated that the purpose of the safeguards visit is to detect any possible undeclared nuclear activities and materials related to the development of so-called dirty bombs. The IAEA inspected one of the two locations a month ago, and no undeclared nuclear activities or materials were found there. Director General Grossi said he would provide his initial conclusions later this week after inspectors complete the verification activities at both sites. Ukraine received between 20 and 30 M109L 155mm self-propelled howitzers, or SPGs, from Italy in a fifth aid package that outgoing Prime Minister Mario Draghi had previously pledged. The artillery pieces arrived in Ukraine last week. Italy's new Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, announced a sixth military aid package to Ukraine in cooperation with France. Italy will transfer six PZH-2000 German-made 155mm SPGs and two M270 Guided Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or GMLRS. The M270 is the big brother to the M142 HIMARS launcher, capable of carrying two cassettes of six rockets each. Additionally, Italy and France have agreed to supply Ukraine with the SAMP-T air defense system, which is considered on par with IRIS-T and NASAMS. One benefit over NASAMS is that a single SAMP-T launcher can carry between 30 to 48 anti-aircraft missiles versus 8 for NASAMS. Italy has agreed to provide the radar system, while France will provide one launcher. The United States Department of Defense released details on the $275 million drawdown from previously approved funds to provide military aid to Ukraine. The new package includes additional rockets for HIMARS, 500 Excalibur 155mm shells, 2,155mm rounds of Ottawa-compliant remote anti-armor mine systems, 1,300 non-specified anti-armor systems, 125 Humvees, small arms with 2.75 million rounds of ammunition, and four satellite communication antennas. Since February 24th, the United States has provided $17.9 billion in military aid to Ukraine. Sweden also announced a fresh military aid package to Ukraine, including RBS-70 manpad air defense systems and an undisclosed number of coveted Archer 155mm SPGs. Finally, if you weren't adding up the numbers, Russian aviation forces verifiably lost four helicopters in one day three KA-52s and one MI-8. Russia may have lost up to seven rotocraft in 24 hours, with Ukraine claiming it shot down two more in Kherson. Speaking of losses, let's talk about Russian mobilization. A war of words between the Kremlin and PMC Wagner Group's financer and leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, escalated today, with Putin's chef openly criticizing the announced ending of mobilization. In a change of course, Prigozhin called for total mobilization after he defended his recruitment of convicts to fight in Ukraine. 
saying, quote, If not prisoners, it would be the adult children of Russian parents. Flexing his growing political clout, the global mercenary leader said the, quote, children of the elite should go to the war in Ukraine and accused his fellow oligarchs of preventing total mobilization. Prigozhin and Colonel General Dandan Ramzan Kadyrov have been openly at war with Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu and appeared to have coordinated the takedown of former Central Military District Commander Colonel General Alexander Lapin late last week. Russian President Vladimir Putin called an official end to mobilization on October 31st and then expressed shock that he didn't have the authority to make the decision. Putin was told that he would need to get a second decree from the state Duma to end the call-up of Mobix officially. Putin said he would, quote, discuss with lawyers whether it is necessary to issue a decree on the completion of the mobilization, end quote, adding that mobilization, quote, has been completed, the full stop has been added, end quote. In what appears to be another coordinated power play between Prigozhin and Colonel General Kadyrov, the Chechen leader said that mobilization would continue in Chechnya in defiance of Putin's announcement. Hey, fun fact, when the Kremlin announced the partial mobilization on September 20th, the Chechen warlord stated that he would not participate because Chechnya was already 241% over its required conscription goals. Belarus and Russia announced they are creating joint military training centers with self-declared Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko signing a decree of cooperation. Russian state media agency TASS claimed that some untrained Mobics were being recalled to receive military training. State Duma Deputy Maxim Ivanov, responsible for those mobilized in the Urals, reported that a list of names had been submitted of troops to be returned to Russia. In Yurga, Russia, contract military training officers dragged Mobics outside and beat them for constant drunkenness and insubordination to commanders. Once they are done fighting amongst themselves, the fresh Mobics will be assigned to the 74th Separate Motorized Rifle Brigade, Unit 21005. The beatings will continue until morale improves. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russian President Putin appeared to admit to a major war crime when asked a question by a Russian journalist in Sochi. The reporter, referring to the October 31st missile strikes, asked, quote, are the extensive strikes on the territory of Ukraine a response to the recent events in Sevastopol? End quote. Putin replied, quote, This is true to an extent, but we can do more. End quote. The Geneva Convention, Article 56, states that the intentional destruction of power plants that support the basic needs of the civilian population, even if those power plants are jointly used to support the military, cannot be attacked to create human suffering. A belligerent would have to prove that the target power plant or other basic infrastructure, such as water service, primarily benefits a military installation, or that the power plant is being used to launch offensive attacks. An S-300 anti-aircraft missile struck a five-story apartment building in Mykolaiv, 
killing a woman and injuring 12 others as they slept. The missile caused a fire to erupt, forcing rescuers to search for survivors in the rubble while attempting to contain the flames. In Russian-occupied Mariupol, occupation leaders distributed hundreds of electrical heaters to residents because the city's natural gas and thermal lines were completely destroyed during the Russian siege of the city that ended on May 12th. There's only one small problem with this plan. Because the electrical grid is still interconnected with Ukraine, and large areas of the city haven't had electricity restored after its capture, the heaters are useless. Residents claiming the heaters plan to use them for trading or to sell on the black market, as there is almost no work or money in the city. In geopolitical news, Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan announced that his nation would continue its efforts to maintain the Black Sea grain export deal with Ukraine with or without the Kremlin, saying in a speech, quote, Even if Russia behaves hesitantly because it didn't receive the same benefits, we will continue decisively our efforts to serve humanity. End quote. The Turkish leader reported that since the grain deal was forged, 9.3 million tons of food had been delivered to world markets and stabilized food prices. In economic news, the ruble was up slightly, maintaining a narrow trading range with an exchange rate of 61 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices were mixed, with WTI climbing to $88 a barrel, while Brent remained at $94. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market plummeted to $2.56 a gallon, or $0.68 a liter. United States gasoline prices typically drop on the last day of the month as traders sell off unclaimed contracts. EU Dutch TTF natural gas futures dropped another 5.5% to €116 per megawatt hour for December 2022 contracts on news that European natural gas reserves continued to grow and are reaching full capacity. January contracts were trading at €124, also down almost 5%. Chicago SRW wheat futures dropped slightly on news that 14 ships departed out of Odessa and weren't blocked by the Russian military. Prices fell about 1% to $8.73 per bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.